the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Thursday edition of The Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danprofshow.com. Get podcasts of the program there as well as on Spotify and iTunes. Uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show. Uh, yesterday, President Biden responding to the um, latest governors. It's being treated as if they're the only governors. The latest governors, that would be Tate Reeves of Mississippi and Greg Abbott of Texas, to uh, fully reopen their states for business as well as to rescind mask mandates. Biden saying this of those governors. And the last thing, the last thing we need is the Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything's fine. Take off your mask. Forget it. It still matters. Neanderthal thinking 16 governors now have rescinded mask mandates. And uh, the uh, basis for these mandates in part and the continued propagandizing about masks from Biden and his ilk is a uh, February 2020 uh, report entitled the decline in COVID uh, study decline in COVID-19 hospitalization growth rate associated with statewide mask mandates. Uh, this uh, looked at 10 states uh, from March of October of 2020, February 2021 report looked at 10 states from March to October of 2020. And the CDC described uh, in that report a decrease in hospitalization rates of up to 5.6% in adults attributed to the use of masking and or the introduction of mask mandates. Uh, They, however, then corrected that report to note some of the important inaccuracies. And the conclusions, uh, basically, the CDC admits that the scientific evidence is mixed and and, um, they suggests that uh, prevention of spread is not obvious. In point of fact, their own report concludes the use of non-pharmaceutical measures such as face masks in pandemic influenza warned that scientific evidence from 14 randomized controlled trials of these measures did not support a substantial effect on transmission. Moreover, in the World Health Organization's 2019 guidance document, same thing, they reported face masks. There is uh, of face masks. There is no evidence that this is effective in reducing transmission. And so, there's been a few studies uh, recently that mix the conclusions by suggesting there is some material, perhaps maybe just outside the margin of, just yeah, just outside the margin of of ineffectuality to mask wearing, but it is far from the panacea or the tip of the spear transmission reduction measure that it is being suggested still to this day, despite all of the evidence. 
For more on this and uh, other matters COVID-related, a few other topics we need to get to as well, pleased to be joined again by Victor Davis Hanson. He is classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution, Stanford, also the author of The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, and The Case for Trump. VDH, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, How do you... um, process this continued emphasis on mask wearing, mask mandates, mask as, uh, as I said, uh, a tip of the spear measure in terms of trying to uh, save lives, as uh, somebody like Joe Biden would say? I think part of it is, is fear. I mean, these are, remember George Patton said, never let us be captive of our fears, and that's what's happened. Second is there's a lot of functionaries, bureaucrats, and people who ordinary wouldn't draw attention or claim or have the center stage in the national media attention, and they are, and they're loath to give it up, and they feel if the country returns to normal, then they return to normal, and that normal in comparison to where they've been the last year is not very inviting, apparently. But what I'm confused about is that when we went into this lockdown a year ago, We were told it was going to be for three weeks to flatten the curve. We all thought that might be good. We didn't know enough about it. But a year later, we're looking at the New York or California model versus the Texas or Florida in terms of cases per million or deaths per million. There's not that much difference, but there is a wide difference in economic growth. And probably we don't have the complete data, less suicide, spousal abuse in these states like Florida and Texas that weren't completely locked down. So that kind of begs the question, if these are the people who adhere to science, what are they doing? And remember what they told us. They Before herd immunity was a bad word in April of last year, a lot of people said, and these were around Fauci and Fauci himself, they won't end until we get vaccinations and a cer- certain number of people have antibodies. And they told us when that started to happen, and many of them wrote it, around 60 to 65 wouldn't be complete herd immunity, but it would start to see a downward trend. Well, now we have 30,000 people with confirmed cases. Models suggest another 100 million uh, either had asymptomatic cases or they were sick but didn't get tested, and they all have antibodies. And we have 50 million of uh, 1 to 12-year-olds who probably are going to be asymptomatic. And then we have another, I think this by tomorrow, we're going to have 80, 80 million with at least one vax. So we're getting close to that 65 percent, 250 uh, people that have some sort of protection. And guess what? It's exactly what they told us. They said that each day or each week there would be little spikes and stuff, but gradually we would go, we would go down. So we've gone down by a magnitude of 10 here in California. And it's directly correlated with 9 million vaccinations and another 4 million confirmed cases and probably another 8 or 9 million that have antibodies. And all of a sudden they said, well, you know, that's not right. We're not going to adhere by that. But that's what they told us to expect. And they said it would be a long, hard year, but eventually we would have acquired immunity or vaccinated immunity. And now uh, we don't, I guess. And And the final thing is, yeah. Don't you think it's very dang- don't you think it's dangerous when you've told people for six months that vaccination is the magic bullet to kill this virus and suddenly to tell people who've heard stories about a side effects a bad time with a second moderna or a Pfizer shot you know what even if you get 
vaccinated, you're still going to have to wear a mask. You're still going to have to social distance. And there won't be any much different in your, difference in your life. Why would a person want to go get a vaccination if they felt it would make no difference if you had suspicions about it anyway? It's a very bad PR angle to be giving to the American people right now. Well, it's also the the strangest thing. The closer we get to herd immunity, the farther in in uh, the future, Tony Fauci says it will be until we return to normal. Earlier this uh, late last year and until the end of last year, Tony Fauci was talking about the fall of this year. He was talking about uh, towards the end of this year. Now, as some uh, medical professionals, including uh, Johns Hopkins, Dr. Marty Macri, suggesting we may be by to herd immunity by April. Now Fauci saying we not we're not going to be back to pre COVID-19 normal on, uh, by March of next year. Yeah. And I don't know what to make of that other than I'm just an empiricist. And he said, you remember when this started, that we that mask had no efficacy. And then later he said, I was lying so you wouldn't all go out and buy them and deny the availability of medical care professionals. And then he said, herd immunity will not be obtained till we have 95%. And then he went back and said, well, it might start showing at 60, but I, I lied because I wanted people to not drop their guard. So he's what we call, I guess in classics, a practitioner of a noble lie, the platonic lie that certain yes. elites, guardians, have the right to lie to us because they know what's good for us and we're ignorant. And that's his modus operandi. So he has zero credibility. I hate to say that, but he should really retire. He's totally discredited. And the per people they demonize, and he demonized, Scott Atlas had told us all along that reluctantly he came to the conclusion that the Stanford epidemiologist and immunologists like Michael Labed and John Yanides and Bachelorera and all the rest of them were right. And that is that when it was all said and done, the toll from a complete lockdown would equal or exceed that of saving lives from COVID. And that was, um, nobody wanted to hear that. And then there were going to be natural things. They mentioned weather, they mentioned herd immunity and vaccination that would finally defeat the virus. And they seem to be uh, more and more correct every day and Fauci more and more wrong. Well, when we come back with Victor Davis Hanson, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, COVID uh, as it relates to border security and uh, get into a couple of other, other topics as well, including the Capitol shutdown uh, based on a conspiracy theory. Victor Davis Hanson, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, author of The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, as well as The Case for Trump. We'll be right back with you. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Victor Davis Hanson. He is a classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution. And before the break, we we're talking about uh, COVID as it relates to mask mandates and the reaction to from the president to those governors who are 
withdrawing their mask mandates, as well as uh, the pronouncements from Tony Fauci on when pre-pandemic normal might be a possibility, continues to be extended out into the future, even as we get closer to herd immunity. And then there's this, the cases that apparently don't matter to these same people that are essentially taking a zero COVID posture. Uh, And by the way, more and more on the left, Jonathan Chait in New York, in New Yorker saying zero COVID is the wrong standard. Welcome to the party, Jonathan Chait and so many on the left. But here, uh, 1,600 migrants were arrested over three, just three days in a single Texas border sector, the Del Rio sector. And of those released, it's reported more than 100 tested positive for COVID, yet they were released. And not to mention the projections of more than 117,000 unaccompanied minors that will show up at the southern border this year, according to uh, the Biden administration, according to a domestic policy document that was shared with Biden yesterday. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson, um, what about that? We we don't care about border security. We don't care about border security, even as it pertains to the spread of COVID. Yeah, I think that's part of characteristic of the progressive mind. They have this abstract morality, and they're globally concerned about everybody on the planet, including people in south of the border. But the person next to them, the the real stuff of life, that is worrying about your neighbor and your fellow American citizen, that's that's not so romantic. And so we've seen that again and again. Uh, Joe Biden has terrible timing. So here we are as we're coming out of COVID. And we're getting some astonishing reductions in caseloads, and the economy is ready to go back, and he's going to push a $1.9 trillion quote-unquote stimulus bill at a time when we're $28 trillion in debt, or gas prices are starting to rise because of increased consumer demand as the economy restarts. And what does he do? He starts to shut down pipelines and stop fracking. The same thing uh, applies to what you mentioned about immigration. Here we are. We're, we're, we're just telling everybody we're going to let's not, you know, at least the Republicans are. Let's not trip before the finishing line. We're coming there. And he opens the border and there's no COVID security at all. And I don't know. It seems to me that I don't know if, whether his wife is in charge or he has a team of people around him, but the fact that he hasn't appeared uh, in the longest period of any president, he hasn't appeared really since Inauguration Day in unscripted format. Even that wasn't scripted. Uh, that was scripted. Like It's kind of like the Wilson, Woodrow Wilson last two, uh, 18 mm-hmm. months where his wife, Edith Wilson, was kind of running the country. But it doesn't, it's, it's kind of scary because I don't think the American people know who or what is behind some of these crazy things. Is it AOC? Is it Kamala Harris? Is it his cabinet? I, I don't know, but it, it's herky-jerky and it's it's self-defeating. The uh, uh, Not so interested in border security, but very interested in security in D.C., which looks like a military camp. And, uh, and despite the presence there, National Guardsmen and, uh, and, and all of the uh, fortification of D.C., Congress shut down uh, out of fear, they said, of potential violence because of uh, Q uh, conspiracy theories uh, circulating online. It, to me, you're telling me you, you can't that, that that all of that, all of those resources couldn't defend against whatever the uh, the threat assessment was. It seems to me that is consistent with this narrative that the left is trying to spin that the 
government is constantly under siege by Trump voters, Trump uh, insurrectionists, Trump conspiracy theorists online. And this is the greatest threat to our representative republic. That's absolutely right. And that's the trademark, again, of the progressive mind. We saw it uh, during the Katrina disaster. We saw it during COVID lockdown, COVID recession, COVID pandemic. They're always, as Rahm Emanuel and picked up by Hillary Clinton and Gavin Newsom, they're always looking for a serious crisis, and I'm quoting directly, never to let go waste. And so they feel that their agenda does not warrant 51% in normal times. So they're always saying this is a crisis, we have to have a war on this and this, and therefore we can get the agenda through. As far as the the so-called insurrection, all of the writs of that Senate trial, impeachment trial, in the Senate have dissipated. We were told it was an armed insurrection, yet we know now that nobody inside the Capitol of that mob uh, was ever arrested for the use or even the possession of a firearm. So, so, and then there was no real planning. There was no insurrection. It was a bunch of mob of lawbreakers who broke in and trashed the Capitol and should be punished. But the idea that they were armed and had a pre-intent to take over the government is ludicrous. And then we were told... Five dead, five dead, five dead, five dead, always in connection with Donald Trump is a murderer or a conspiracy to commit murder. And now we learn that of the five, only one probably died violently by the hand of another, and that was an unarmed woman who unlawfully broke through a, wim- a window who was shot on, while on, unarmed by a police officer whose name, for some reason, we don't know, and that seems to be a break in protocol given the police are usually identified immediately when they shoot an unarmed suspect. And then we learn that the other four either died of natural causes or in one case uh, might have been trampled or bustled in the crowd, and all of those four were Trump supporters. So the whole conspiracy, insurrection, murder has all collapsed. And the, the now we look back at that, both the impeachment and the trial, it was based on nothing. And we, we sort of knew that when the chief justice would not uh, preside, and it would, the trial portion was against a private citizen, which we've never had. We've never had a president impeached twice, and uh, it, it's just, it was just a sham. I think that's one of the reasons now that Donald Trump, whose epitaph was written a month ago, that he's through uh, the Biden record and the, the more information about the Capitol riot and the fact he's not on Twitter or Facebook and can't really reply, it's you know, counterintuitive, given him that surge of support you saw at the CPAC. Yeah, you you can't blame Trump, right? But Trump isn't fanning the flames. There's no right. There's no uh, uh, portal for him to do so. And uh, also, uh, Christopher Ray, the FBI director. I mean, two months after the violence at the Capitol, and he still, the FBI still can't confirm the cause of death for the Capitol officer in question, Brian Sicknick, who was used by the left as the basis for the impeachment in part, impeachment 2.0 in part, can't confirm his cause of death, even though we've got reporting from his brother and the communications between the two um, the day after the rioting that occurred on the night of the the riots. But the FBI had two months and they can't confirm the cause of death. No, we we know that it wasn't violently. It could, by by a stretch of the imagination, you might have had a a delayed allergic reaction to some type of chemical agent that was in the air, but the idea that he was hit and assaulted by a Trump supporter and had a brain trauma is not, it's not true. And that was explicitly mentioned by some of the senators in the impeachment trial. And so a lot of this stuff 
It's just, it's just dissipated. He is Victor Davis Hanson, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, author of The Second World War is How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, and The Case for Trump. BDH, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Dan. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and it would be nice if everybody started from the same foundational belief in the norms of a free society, as enshrined in America's founding documents, for example. It would be nice if that were the case, but you can't expect your philosophical enemies to treat you fairly and squarely. This is something that conservatives have had to, uh, some conservatives have had to learn the hard way, and it speaks to the need for institution and enterprise building among Conservatives or even those who don't identify themselves themselves as conservatives, but certainly believe in the tenets of a, a free society are peaceful pluralists at heart need to build new institutions. We have this conversation all the time with Andrew Clavin about um, encouraging more conservatives or people who believe in peaceful pluralism to go into the arts and entertainment or quality intellects and entertainers that have a center right disposition, but they don't seem to populate areas uh, within the arts. And the same goes with trying to build institutions uh, that uh, that, that uh, are engaged in other civic and intellectual pursuits. Well, uh, one person who is doing that in the tech space, it's not just Parler and Gab. Uh, it's also Larry Sanger, who is the co-founder of Wikipedia and the creator of a new enterprise called Encyclosphere, He's also the author of Essays on Free Knowledge, The Origins of Wikipedia, and the New Politics of Knowledge. Larry, pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So um, before we get into your new project, which I definitely do want to do, the um, origin of Wikipedia, what it was originally conceived to be, and uh, how it lost its way, I think that story is instructive for people who are unfamiliar with it. Sure. Wikipedia started when Jimmy Wales had the, the perfectly fine, excellent idea, in fact, of uh, organizing uh, a group of uh, volunteers from all around the world to write a free encyclopedia um, according to methods used by the open source software community. So the same sort of principles that were used to develop the Linux, the Linux operating system, would be used to develop um, an encyclopedia. So it was my job to actually start it. Um, and uh, it, I, I, to make a, a very long story short, it went well in the beginning, I think, for the most part. But the problem was, in the end, it was taken over by people who wanted to use the power of the new system to um, make uh, to make it say what they believed, to to um, uh, abandon the neutrality policy and um, basically uh, use what should have been an open 
free platform for everyone to, to collaborate on and arrive at a kind of consensus view um, to, to take that and, and make it into a, a propaganda platform for the left, essentially. And- and, and it's, it's, you know, these are always interesting stories because so you, so you and Jimmy Wales have this sort of shared vision of what Wikipedia would be, and then it gets hijacked. And uh, it's always interesting to understand how that happened when you have the principles committed to a particular vision, then it gets hijacked to do something completely different. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what can I say about that? It's, uh, it's a terrible thing, actually. And, but it happens in in a lot of institutions, as we know. I actually feel the same way about uh, academia. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I started college in 1986, you know, uh, I went to one of the most liberal colleges in the country, and yet I was still able to um, get a, a pretty good, well-rounded education that wasn't it wasn't indoctrination. And I don't think that's the case anymore. You can go to the same college that I went to. I won't mention it by name. I don't harbor ill will for them. Um, in, in any uh, of a number of other liberal arts colleges, and the mission, the mission has changed. It, it has been co-opted. The same thing has happened um, with uh, with Wikipedia and you know with the original vision that, that like Mark Zuckerberg had for for Facebook as well. That kind of thing. You know, I mean, ultimately, uh, his, his original notion was that ultimately we we're going to connect all the world and, you know, uh, bring us all together and it's going to be great. Um, but uh, we weren't really told that it was going to morph into an, an institution for social control, which is really what it's become. Uh, when we come back with uh, Larry Sanger, I want to talk more about uh, the big tech landscape as well as his specific new project in Cyclosphere. Larry Sanger, co-founder of Wikipedia, creator of Inset in Cyclosphere, uh, author of Essays on Free Knowledge. We'll be right back with more. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Larry Sanger. He's the co-founder of Wikipedia, creator of Encyclosphere, and author of Essays on Free Knowledge, The Origins of Wikipedia, and the New Politics of Knowledge. And Larry, before the break, we were just talking about... Um, the vision of Wikipedia being hijacked, the vision of fate. You, you gave Facebook as another example. Here's what Mark Zuckerberg had originally conceived and promoted, and it became something – Facebook has become something very different. As you said, it's morphed into a, um, uh, a mechanism for social control. And I wonder if you think – it's sort of similar to the conversations on academia or the arts and entertainment – it is are, are the big tech operations, the big tech social media platforms, the big tech search engines, are, are they reformable from the inside or is it going to take an external event, competition, regulation, the combination of the two to change the big tech lands and social media landscape? I don't know if they can be reformed from the inside, but my inclination is to say no, that if anything, pressures are increasing to radicalize even more. And so if they can be reformed from within, 
then it, it won't happen anytime soon. Uh, and it is very possible that there will be a backlash that, you know, the next generation they'll come and, and take on the mantle. And it's going to take time, right? Because it's still early days. The effects of the indoctrination of the millennials and the younger generation has barely begun. The whole notion of giving the side eye to free speech, that wasn't even a thing until about 2014 or 2015. So I don't see how we could reform things from within if there isn't a cultural, the sociological wherewithal to make that happen. If it's going to be an external event then it, um, or events, then they better uh, manifest themselves because, uh, it, as you say, look what's happened from 2014 to 2021. A lot has changed in the direction away from freedom of speech and thought in just those past seven years, uh, which brings us to your project in part. Um, tell us about Encyclosphere. So the Encyclosphere project is not an app. It's not a website, although it's been reported as that. It's a network, so you can think of it like the blogosphere. Um, it doesn't matter what platform you blog on. You can move your blog uh, wherever you like, and that's why there isn't a single blog you know, overlord, the way there's a single micropost overlord like Twitter or a, a single social image sharing service like Instagram because there's a common standard. So what I want to do is create a similar sort of common standard, like an RSS for encyclopedic information, for reference information. I want to give Wikipedia and Britannica, many, many others, because there's a lot of reference sites online, the ability to express, if not the articles themselves, then the metadata about the articles in a single common format, which makes it possible for people to build apps around the whole Kind of like blog readers or news readers. Like if you use like a news reading app, that really makes use of RSS a lot because all of the news services, they use RSS to put information about their news stories out there. So we want to do the same thing for encyclopedias. And then that is going to allow people to search encyclopedias from wherever they are, even just single encyclopedia articles that somebody puts on, on on a blog, for example, could be included in this network and could go head to head with the articles from Wikipedia. In the end, I, I think the whole of all the encyclopedias in the world is much more powerful and is going to produce much more accuracy and fairness than Wikipedia by itself. You're not going to have that hosted on Amazon servers, I hope. No, no. Well, you know, <laughs> being a network, it isn't going to be hosted right. by any one particular organization at all. But yeah, we're hosted by InMotion Hosting, actually. Yeah, no, I've obviously a joke about uh, about Parler and yeah. and, <laughs> and 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 I mean and and, and uh, so so that's that's really interesting and and it's great to sort of reference material, sort of foundational knowledge from which to build um, something that is being there. At least there's an effort afoot to erase it. So that's mission critical work i wonder what you think uh, about uh, social media because of course so much of this scholarship regardless of the uh, the source uh -huh. gets repurposed through social media and do you see opportunities if not for parlor or gab then for other such iterations to really compete with and displace twitter and facebook yes but the but part is they need to become interoperable with each other because you know if you go to Gab or Parler, 
and you start putting in the same amount of time there that you do on Twitter, you are reaching a small fraction of the audience that you are on Twitter. Right. And that's that's a problem, you know, because, I mean, people use Twitter for a kind of advertising, really. Um, or and, and you're trying to get your message out there to the greatest number of people. Well, the only way that we're going to build a viable alternative is if we make all the different competing players talk to each other, essentially. So what, what this means, what interoperability means is I post something on Parler and something similar appears on all the other networks. So there's a single conversation that's going on um, in the microposting world, if you want to call it that, the microposting network. There's a single conversation and different clients, different windows into it. And if Twitter wants to delete some particular tweets, that's fine, but you'll be able to see those tweets or, and, and you know those banned accounts on other services interacting with, uh, with other people. So I, I think the way to make this happen is, again, there needs to be a lingua franca like RSS, but for, for social media. And that's actually something that the Knowledge Standards Foundation, which is also working on the Atlacosphere, is working on. We are actually developing a plug-in for WordPress, which is going to allow people to do something like Twitter, it'll it'll look and feel like Twitter for the end user, and push out messages to uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and whatever and other um, you know alternative uh, services like Parler and Gap, sure, and also collect their responses from all of those. Or at least that's the that's the vision there. When, so, when, um, again, yeah, we, need when, the, we need the tools to make it happen. When we come back with Larry Sanger, co-founder of Wikipedia, I want to stick on the topic of peaceful pluralism, like how to advance it, and those who are building the better mousetraps in the digital space. I get uh, Larry's view on that when we come back. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Wikipedia co-founder and Encyclosphere creator Larry Sanger talking about uh, the uh, social media and landscape in particular, the digital landscape generally. And Larry, I'm curious when you look at the tech landscape online, um, who do you think is building an interesting, at least interesting, if not uh, really compelling mousetrap? Is it, uh, are, is it some of the podcast network? And, and I mean this in furtherance of, of peaceful pluralism, of free thinking and, and exchange of ideas, you know, the marketplace of ideas. Is it, is it some of the podcast platforms? Is it some of the social media that we mentioned already? Alternative? Is it uh, Rumble? Is it anybody really captivating you out there at this point? Um, I, well, there's a couple. I'm, I'm kind of drawn to minds. I don't use minds that much myself, but I think they get a lot right. The design is excellent. They also uh, have the ability to publish the, the contents of, uh, you know, the posts on minds to a, 
something like a BitTorrent network, which means it can be shared uh, everywhere. At least that's in the plans, I am told. That's what the, the CEO told me. So that's um, – I, I think they're moving in the right direction. They actually care about decentralization there, unlike, uh, frankly, Parler and Rumble. Um, Odyssey is doing the same thing. Um, they have uh, what are called magnet links, or actually it's BitChute that has magnet links. They're another good one. Um, Odyssey has its own protocol that works like magnet links. And so what these, again, are like these uh, a decentralized storage network for content. So ultimately, it shouldn't matter what, what uh, client you use, whether you use library or, um, or Odyssey. So th- those are two video platforms. So these are examples of, of people who are doing the hard work of building the technology of decentralization uh, and at the same time uh, at the same time trying to make some money, which is kind of hard actually. Uh, the, the Knowledge Standards Foundation is taking a different approach altogether, which is you know we're a nonprofit. We're we're uh, in the process of applying for 501c3 tax exempt status, and I, I think ultimately that's gonna that's gonna be what it takes. Um, the the tendency to monetize things in general is what uh, it, it, it places centralizing pressures, and so that, that's why I say, you know, that there aren't any really great examples out there. I love Linux. <laughs> you okay. want a good example, but that's yeah. not news. <laughs> right, right. Uh, he is Larry Sanger, co-founder of Wikipedia, creator of Encyclosphere, author of Essays on Free Knowledge, The Origins of Wikipedia, and the New Politics of Knowledge. Larry, great to have you. Uh, fun speaking with you. Thank you. the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Please follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow. New York Governor Party Nips uh, gave uh, another run at an apology. This is his second try. See if you think he was any more successful than in his first try. First, I fully support a woman's right to come forward. And I think it should be encouraged in every way. I now understand that I acted in a way that made people feel uncomfortable. It was unintentional. And I truly and deeply apologize for it. I feel awful about it. And frankly, I am embarrassed by it. And that's not easy to say. But that's the truth. But this is what I want you to know. And I want you to know this from me directly. I never touched anyone inappropriately. The pro- yeah, the problem with that is the uh, uh, I mean, there are many problems with that. Uh, and by the way, I would have expected a better performance from an international Emmy Award winner. But the third accuser, 
is all over the New York Post and other outlets, picture from the wedding with Cuomo's hands on her cheeks. This is somebody who didn't know nipple studs before that wedding. And that picture, to me, lends a lot of credibility to her suggestion that he put his hand on the small of her back and she had to swat it away and then grabbed her by the cheeks, which we see pictured, and tried to kiss her, saying, can I kiss you? And she turned away. And by the way, just as a quick aside, I've been trying to figure out who he sounds like since we've had to endure so much of his pablum over the last few weeks. He sounds a little bit like Christopher Walken, not exactly Christopher Walken, but more like Jay Moore doing a Christopher Walken impersonation. It's good to be here. At my age, it's good to be anywhere. That was a joke. And, you know, the same madcap sense of humor, which was the effort he made in his first non-apology apology to chalk this up to his just zany way of joking around with subordinates. So how is this playing? Well, uh, Newsmax did a little man on the street outside Grand Central Station and uh, asked random New Yorkers if they think uh, Cuomo should resign. Andrew Cuomo, should he resign? Absolutely. Why do you say that? Sooner the better. He's worse governor in the history of the state. Usually where there's smoke, there's fire, I find. Who do you trust more, Andrew Cuomo or Chris Cuomo? <laughs> Neither. Should he resign? What do you think? I like Cuomo. I like Cuomo. Why do you like him? Because he's Italian. I'm Italian. Rudy Giuliani was too. I don't like him. Sorry. Boo. Bye, Cuomo. Bye, Andy. They have to wait for the investigation. There should be an investigation first. No, nah, he shouldn't resign. I don't think so. Should he retire? Should go to jail? Sorry, dude. You f***ed up. Governor Andrew Cuomo, should he resign? Yes. Should he resign? Should he be impeached? What are your thoughts? I think he should. I think there needs to be an investigation, to be fair about it. It's not looking good for him. He's going to have, he's going to, he's going to need women to come out of his defense. I mean, Melissa DeRosa, you know, she should be speaking out for him. I mean, that's the only way he's going to be saved. What is your biggest concern? Is it the sexual harassment allegations or what he did with the nursing homes? There's a long list. Cuomo had no problem getting his brother on there with the, the, the prop and the fake Q-tip and laughing it up. It would be like, you know, Giuliani being on CNN, laughing it up while bodies burned on, uh, in the buildings on September 11th. Guy's writing a book about leadership. Guy has audacity. Audacity, indeed. Oh, and by the way, on Cuomo, the intrepid Pointer Institute, you know, upholding the canons of journalism, you know, as, as a last resort, has now weighed in and said, oh, you know, Fredo Cuomo, you shouldn't have had brother nipple studs on the show. Uh, because now that he won't have him on the show, it shows a real conflict of interest. Conflict of interest having on the show and then the double standard not having him on the show now to field questions about uh, both scandals. What a joke. And uh, the Pointer Institute and their lethargy in responding to examples of hackery in supposed journalistic circles is exactly why journalism is a punchline these days. By the way, the bigger issue, which was mentioned by some of those uh, New Yorkers that were interviewed for that MOS piece, don't let this subsume the nursing home issue, because that is the bigger issue based on just the allegations we know so far from the women. It's a serious issue. Fine. But it is not the sending sick people back into nursing homes and then covering it up. It is, doesn't rise to that level. That is the real crime here. And this is why you have so many left in the media saying, oh, we need to hold Cuomo accountable so they can't accuse us of double standards like our friend Jeet Hare over at New Republic. Yeah, the nursing home scandal, the COVID-related performance, Mr. Bestseller, 
that's Mr. International Emmy with the wonderful press conferences. That is the fundamental issue as far as a reason for to force his resignation or move his impeachment. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Chris Smith, author of The Daily Show, the book, An Oral History, as told by John Stewart, the correspondent, the correspondence staff and guests. He's also a contributing editor at New York Magazine and contributor to Vanity Fair. Chris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, you've uh, penned a piece on Governor Cuomo as well and um, suggesting that um, his canonization may have been uh, a bit too early or certainly it is making the fall that much greater. Yes. As I wrote back in May of 2020 in Vanity Fair, the governor, while a lot of people appreciated his daily press conferences and his verbal sort of hand-holding through the early and middle days of the pandemic, you know, there were a lot of holes in his policy response to it, even at that time. And he was being canonized in a lot of the media. Certainly his public approval ratings were soaring. And as we know from public life, from politics, you know, what goes up must come down. And after a long history of the governor abusing people, intimidating them, uh, not Physically, but for many, many years, you know, screaming, yelling, transferring, all sorts of things that are sharp-elbowed politics, but that had left him with no reservoir of goodwill in New York or national political circles for the most part. And that's coming back to haunt him loud and clear now. It's interesting. There's um, the, the operatives I've talked to who know the New York political landscape much better than I are sort of divided on this. They all agree that uh, what you were saying, that Cuomo has no friends, and this goes back to his days as the political enforcer for his father. He's been rubbing people the wrong way and yep. not making and friends and influencing people right for a long time. But there's divided opinion whether this is particularly a parochial matter about Andrew Cuomo or this is in part a local matter and in part a national matter, and it's Democrats at the federal level wanting to keep him in New York or derail him altogether because of his national ambitions. And perhaps even some have theorized that this is a dress rehearsal for what Democrats may do with respect to Joe Biden if he doesn't hew the orthodoxy of the party and, and where the energy is in the party, that the idea that, hey, you, you have these old allegations, too, that we can bring forward, and maybe there are others that we can bring forward, and this is sort of a sort of Damocles hanging over Joe Biden's head the, the way that it was hanging over Andrew Cuomo's head until it got cut. That's interesting. I find it a bit of a reach. You know, okay. certainly the people who've broken the stories in New York, you know, it's all over the map. The New York Times broke one of the big stories. The New York Post broke a lot of huge nursing home related stories. Cuomo's national ambitions, while well, he's certainly had them for a long time, have always been pretty unrealistic at zero now, given the past few weeks. But he knew, and I think a lot of people in national democratic politics knew that he wasn't going to D.C. He, he almost certainly was never going to be running for president. So nobody, you know, on the national scene, he doesn't have a lot of friends. People are not unhappy to see him uh, in the barrel, so to speak, at the moment. But I don't think anybody was particularly worried about him uh, challenging them on a national level. What's more internal politics, there are plenty of people in state politics who'd love to see him leave the job 
simply so they can move up, you know, sure. because he's had, a, he's had a stranglehold on state government for almost 12 years now and wants it to be for 16 years. And, you know, there's a lot of highly ambitious younger people who, who would like to see the deck shuffled a bit. Well, I, for one, certainly hope he survives. I certainly hope he survives because uh, he may be the only thing that can get a Republican elected governor in New York State if he were to be the nominee again come well, election time. Well, it cuts, it cuts a lot of ways. I mean, because you talk to people in the business community here who, while, you know, on a personal level, they're not any fans of the governor, see him as the only thing standing in the way between the state legislature passing a bunch of tax hikes on rich people and spending a lot more money, you know, that he's been a moderating influence in terms of state government. There's a lot of conflicting currents at the moment around the governor. He is Chris Smith, author of The Daily Show, the book, An Oral History, as told by John Stewart, the correspondence, staff, and guests, a contributing editor at New York Magazine and at Vanity Fair. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show so the uh, defund the police movement got some additional momentum yesterday with the house passing legislation that now has to go over to the senate this has a high hurdle yet to clear as it passed with just the required number of Democrat uh, votes to get it over to the Senate side. But it essentially does at the federal level what you see moving at uh, state and local levels, including in Chicago, to uh, impose mandates on police departments that, according to House Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, would um, result in the loss of 3,000 police officers from the streets around the country because of the mandates that would be imposed on local police departments per this federal legislation. Uh, but this is uh, the impetus of the defund the police movement, to uh, do through mandates what you can't necessarily do simply through budget cutting. And uh, this was a topic of conversation back uh, at the height of the civil unrest and violence throughout America last summer into the fall. Uh, June of 2020, The uh, Daily Show hosted a uh, roundtable discussion on Black Lives Matter and the defund the police movement. This has been recommended for viewing by educators. I mentioned uh, the other week, Suburban Chicago, the alma mater of one Hillary Clinton, Maine East High School, recommended the teachers watch this roundtable discussion. Uh, which included, among others, uh, Brooklyn Sociology, Brooklyn College, excuse me, Sociology Professor Alex Vitale on abolishing the police. And here's what Professor Vitale had to say. It's really more about a process driven by a set of principles than it is some predetermined outcome. I think what we're seeing on the streets today when people say defund the police, yes, it's about these immediate changes that Patrice is talking about, but it's also about a generation of young people, you know, crying out for a world that isn't driven by racial and class inequalities that are enforced by policing. And the sad truth is, is that that has been the role that police have played in American society and enforcers of systems that produce these inequalities. And, and every time we turn a problem over to them, it, it makes those inequalities worse in the long run. 
-hmm. So police abolition is about trying to reduce the burden of policing today while we work to build something better for the future. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid professor, Alex Vitale, professor of sociology and coordinator of the policing and social justice movement at Brooklyn College. He's also the author of the book, The End of Policing. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, So develop this uh, end of policing thesis. Um, I've read uh, a good portion of your book and what uh, the end of policing would give birth to in terms of the way to preserve order in a free society. You know, first, I want to say that actually, I'm not a big fan of the House bill. I don't think it particularly is consistent with the defund the police movement. Doesn't go far enough. Well, it's not only that it doesn't go far enough, it doesn't approach the problem in the right way. In fact, some of these mandates that you're concerned about are mandates that I don't agree with either. I don't think we're going to fix policing with implicit bias training or de-escalation training. You know, the the officers involved in the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis had had all that training, were wearing body cameras. They had all the changes to use of force policies, and it just didn't matter, just didn't make a difference. The evidence is pretty clear that a lot of these mandates don't work. And I don't think the problem with policing in the United States can be, you know, captured by just saying, well, cops are racist, and if we just give them sensitivity training that this is going to fix it. I, I think this is not the way to understand the problem. I think the way to understand the problem is to say, look, we've turned every social problem under the sun over to the police to manage. We've both made these problems worse, like mass homelessness, mass untreated mental health and substance abuse problems, failed schools, And then when those problems emerge, we say, well, let's give that all to the police. And I think even a lot of police understand that this is a mistake. They don't want to be in the mental health business. They don't want to be in the homeless outreach business. They don't want to really be in charge of youth discipline in schools. And so the defund the police movement is saying, look, we need to rethink our budget priorities. Instead of increasing the police budget every year, maybe we need to put more resources into school counselors, into community-based mental health services, into housing first programs, into high quality drug treatment. And that's, that's really the key demand of this movement. And the bill that passed in Washington doesn't do any of that. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of argument about um, uh, reining in the mission creep that has occurred with policing that you're describing. I think the issue is uh, the defund and police abolition movement, which uh, my sense is that you're generally supportive of uh, and and how, how that would impact the core mission of policing, which is the solving and to some extent the prevention of violent crime in particular. So I think there's. You know, there's been a kind of intentional misrepresentation of the movement. You know, no one who's really doing this work on the ground imagines that there's some magical switch that they can flip and tomorrow, poof, you know, all police will be gone. This is about a a process of interrogating the scope of policing and trying to implement evidence-based alternatives in as many arenas as we can including a lot of arenas around violence. We have a growing body of research that shows that community-based anti-violence strategies can be much more effective at policing and reducing shootings and homicides 
These are things like credible messenger movements, uh, hospital-based uh, trauma counseling. Uh, there, there are a lot of different, uh, including changes to physical design issues, improving street lighting. There, there's a, there's a real sense that we can't just, you know, flip the switch and tomorrow there are no police. But we can begin to invest in alternatives to policing, and we can pursue that process as far as we can reasonably go with that. Well, do you then concede that uh, the evidence suggests that um, the number of police has a effect on crime, especially violent crime, and when crime soars, not only do direct victims suffer, but you run the risk of um, cities or or neighborhoods, if not cities generally, unraveling? So the, the defund the police movement is a public safety movement that is led overwhelmingly by people from communities with high levels of violence and other kind of crime, and for whom policing has not been an adequate strategy for them. So they're trying to figure out investments in community-based strategies that will make them safer than they are now. The research on police effectiveness is very mixed, and even the few studies that show, oh, well, we we increased a few officers here and we got a 3% reduction in burglaries or something, that doesn't mean that if we add 10,000 more officers, we'll get a 10 times bigger reduction in crime. There's absolutely no evidence to support that. Well, uh, and, perhaps... and there's no correlation between the number of police officers per capita and crime rates, and there never has been such a correlation. Well, perhaps there is diminishing marginal return uh, on adding police. I don't know exactly what the, the threshold is where the returns start to diminish. But when we come back with Brooklyn College's Alex Vitale, I want to stay on this topic and get into a study on policing in large cities, more with Professor Vitale right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Brooklyn College's Alex Vitale, talking about uh, the arguably move in the direction of defunding the police that was passed in legislative form by the House yesterday. And and I wanted to go back to what you were saying, Professor, and uh, raise this study done in 2018 by a couple of academics that looked at police and crime data from large and mid-sized cities for a 50-year period, 1960 to 2010. And they estimated that for every dollar spent on extra police generated about $1.63 in social benefits, primarily by reducing murders. And and I, I ask again about whether or not you you believe that policing is the the appropriate mechanism to try to solve and by solving prevent violent crime. So there are several problems with that study, which was done by some economists who have actually no experience with policing or public safety. 
first of all, that cost-benefit calculation assumes that a life saved is worth some magically made-up dollar figure, which is around $5 million. And then it does nothing, but that this is not actually the lifetime earnings of most of the people who are killed, unfortunately. But also, this is a kind of perverse way of thinking about it. The other thing is that they never for a second calculate other costs of policing, not just the cost of the spending, but the cost of the killings that police engage in. Police commit about 8% of all homicides in the United States, legal or otherwise. They also never consider whether or not there are different investments that could pay even higher returns. This is never calculated either. Well, 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 8% of homicides, legal or otherwise, the legal matters. <laughs> the otherwise is the issue. The legal is not. Um, so the thousand people well, that are killed cost, by police, I mean, we're, we're, whether it's a, a justified, whether it's justified or not matters. Lives lost, if, we're, if, we're ju- well, if we're just measuring the cost and lives lost, that calculation should be added into the cost of policing. Well, well fine. But, but, but you cannot conflate justified use of lethal force from unjustified lethal use of lethal force. Unless we can provide evidence that says we could save those lives without killing anyone. So you, you, you started in, in that bite I played from your appearance on The Daily Show last year talking about how police enforce these systems of uh, oppression, uh, racism in, in poor communities. Well, that apparently is going unnoticed by the overwhelming majority of the residents of those poor communities because a Gallup survey last year had 80 percent of black Americans want the same or more police presence where they live. Yes, well, for 40 years, we've told those residents that they can have one and only one thing to produce safety in their communities, and that's more police. And so when we ask them, would you rather have more police or nothing, they say, guess what, we would like more police, even though those same surveys show deep dissatisfaction with policing. What we're trying to say is that we want to give people other choices to make than just policing. And more recent surveys after this summer's public conversations about alternatives to policing show actually a a significant growth in public interest in non-police strategies. And and what is your assessment of, at whatever pace you suggest, of what the impact would be on crime, particularly violent crime, reducing police forces while you're, I guess, uh, energizing this replacement for said police? Well, so in, in Denver, they just released six months of data about diverting 911 calls away from police and to mental health um, outreach teams. The results were incredibly positive. It reduced the need for policing. It's saving the city money. We have similar results from other cities. We have a lot of research about community-based anti-violence strategies that work better than policing. We just need to start implementing more of these things, evaluating the results, taking it one step at a time, and reducing the scope of policing. So it's not about giving police more work to do because there are fewer of them. It's about taking away whole areas of responsibility where we just shouldn't be using police in the first place. But 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 again, uh, the the specific uh, area of responsibility, uh, responding to nine one one calls involving an alleged crime, an alleged act of violence, is that a the purview of police, or is that the purview of community anti policing initiatives? In your view? Well, look, in Chicago, only about five percent of all nine one one calls have anything remotely to do with violence. 
And in the vast majority of those cases, the police response is well after the violence has already occurred. So let's be realistic about this, right? Police are not catching armed robbers in the act. That, that is a, a once in a career achievement for a patrol officer. 95% of what police do has nothing to do with that. So let's start scaling all that stuff back. He is Alex Vitale. He's a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He's also the author of The End of Policing. Professor Vitale, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Hey, hey, hey. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Open the damn schools, says Vichy Republican Governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan. Zero COVID is the wrong standard, writes Jonathan Tate. Jonathan Chate, excuse me, in uh, The New Yorker. Mm. Well, welcome to the party, gentlemen. Uh, uh, over at um, Substack, Barry Weiss's Substack page, another good guest op-ed, this from Robbie Sauve from Reason Magazine, America's Lost Generation. Over the past 12 months, an estimated 18 million kids haven't set foot inside a classroom or have just started coming back for one day a week. That's about one-third of all public school students, which number around 50 million. What's most enraging is that this was entirely avoidable. The country's teachers' unions are committing a generational crime against the nation's young. And if you think they're chastened by that kind of rhetoric, you'd be wrong. Oh, they have a response. They have a response indeed. And this comes to us in the form of a video an instructional video, if you will, and that's generous. This is from the L.A. Unified School District. That's not the teachers' union, but they're beholden to the teachers' union. So what's the difference between the administration, the teachers' union, and these big cities? There is no difference. The L.A. Unified School District, in conjunction with Microsoft, you got to spend all that uh, federal funny money, drop ship to the schools on something, right? How about a day pass? Oh, the vaccination passport, you thought it was going to be for you to fly commercially? You have no idea. Listen to this offering. Propaganda that would have made Bertolt Brecht blush and shamed Orwell, Vonnegut, Bradbury, and Huxley for their lack of imagination. There's never been anything like this virus in our lifetime. Often, it's hard to see the effects it's having on our children. Has this conversation taken place in your home? Mom, I'm scared about going back to school. I don't want to get sick, and I don't want to get you and Dad sick. Our scientists tell us there are three things we must do to stay safe. Wear masks, make sure we social distance, and wash our hands. And now, your school, with the help of Microsoft Corporation, has created another. Introducing Daily Pass, your exclusive ticket for safety going back to school. Each week, you can schedule your free on-campus COVID test. The results are displayed in your daily pass. And if you choose to take your test off campus, you can post the results in your daily pass. And the moment vaccinations are available, you'll simply be able to schedule yours through your daily pass. 
but the real magic is your daily health check. Just answer a few simple health questions every day, and like magic, your entrance ticket appears. Welcome back. Da, 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 da. Everybody's happy. Welcome to school. Sure. You really have to watch the video, too, which I'll tweet out. I have tweeted out. Now oh, she's getting ready to be picked up from so, school by Dad. Dad, I have to admit, I was scared at first. But then I felt so safe. It was so good to be back. Thanks for keeping me safe. I love you so much. Thank you for being the caring family. We're working together with all in the school community to bring children back to school as safely as possible. We're looking forward to seeing their smiling faces back in school where they belong. Thank you. What do you think? Your day pass in conjunction with uh, Microsoft Corporation? You can uh, scan, get, you know, take your test there or somewhere else. You can upload that into your day pass so that you can pass the uh, scan when you try to enter school. And um, yeah, answer these little survey questions on a daily basis just to keep everybody safe. You got to satisfy the safetyists in charge of the schools. Hmm. Uh, mental health claim lines for children increased in 2020. Uh, looking at um, the uh, increase, this uh, from Axios. Percent change in all medical cl claim lines and mental health specific claim lines between January and November of 2019 versus 2020 for children aged 13 to 18, so teenagers. Um, it, it, when the lockdown started in March and April, plus 97%, April and, and March plus 103%, May plus 52%, June plus 31, plus 31, plus 25, plus 19, plus 20, plus 22 through November. Parents, schools, oh, Axios are breaking this down for us in case you didn't understand it. Parents, schools, and pediatricians have been warning for months that kids aren't okay and this analysis backs up their concern with numbers. Welcome to the party, Axios. Just as we welcomed Jonathan Chade over the New York, the New Yorker, and we were, welcome Larry Hogan, and we welcome everybody else who's all of a sudden figured out that, oh, kids belong in school, and locking down children has a deleterious effect on their mental health. And now bump that up against the risk factor associated with COVID for kids under the age of 21. And bump that up against the research that we've known, real world data for months and months and months on end from states and communities and other countries who never shut down their schools or reopened them late summer, early fall about transmission in schools. Mm -hmm. And the response, in case you thought, as I said, that uh, the education establishment, the combination of the leftists in charge of the teachers' unions plus the leftists in the administration, what's their next move? 
still not safe enough. Got to have your day pass at the L.A. Unified School District. And if you think that's going to be limited to L.A., as I said, all these school districts have to spend all that federal largesse somewhere. Might as well be on more safety measures. Getting to, to zero COVID. Making the adults feel safe. Mm-hmm. Exercising even more control over your kids' lives and, by extension, your families. What do you think? This is Dan Rock. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And uh, I know, per Christopher Ray's testimony before Senate Oversight Committee earlier this week, that uh, he said there's no evidence of any Antifa or Black Lives Matter agitators at the uh, uh, responsible for the rioting that occurred on January 6th at the Capitol. This, uh, despite the fact that uh, one John Sullivan was arrested, this individual clearly a man of the left, regardless of uh, the abil- the desire to gloss over the John Sullivan arrest for his conduct on January 6th, including being inside the Capitol. Remember, he filmed the uh, police officer who shot and killed Ashley Babbitt. Uh, the this very creative uh, uh, individual on Rumble profiles of the Olympiad. This sounds like a setup for a Bud Light commercial. Profiles uh, of the Olympiad. The profile on John Sullivan. And by the way, this is accurate, including some stuff I didn't know. Statistically, very few people are able to escape the ghettos of wealthy Northern Virginia, largely due to the fact that most people spend their lives trying to be wealthy enough to get into Northern Virginia. So for a young John Sullivan, he understood full well that the odds were stacked against him. Many of his childhood friends had already fallen prey to the neighborhood's dangerous activities, such as sailing, water polo, lacrosse, and some had even suffered a worse fate, rowing team. With his back against the wall, Sullivan was left with one option, to compete as a speed skater throughout the United States, Spain, France, and Italy with his nationally ranked inline speed skater brothers. But John still felt like he had something more in him to give. So he left it all and moved to Salt Lake City, Utah to train as a professional speed skater because evidently there's money in that. But things wouldn't be easy for the young Sullivan. Salt Lake City was dangerous and cold, mostly cold. So John did what any young, black, non-Mormon speed skater from Virginia could do and worked as an Uber driver, which would enable him to put food in his stomach and about $10 on a 20 sack. John's story was even featured on an Uber commercial, which is totally coincidental and a stroke of luck for this downtrodden young minority from the suburbs. And it was here that John would make his transition from speed skater to speed dealer. The blazing fast pace of Salt Lake City still wasn't enough to quench John Sullivan's thirst. He felt like he was more than just an Olympic hopeful. He was a speed skating, freight shipping, Uber driving cybersecurity expert from Virginia, who was now about to make the next leap in his life without actually having conquered the previous stage. John founded Insurgency USA, 
which is as suspect as it sounds, and became a full-time activist in order to defend other downtrodden minorities from wealthy Virginia suburbs. John was instrumental in organizing a violent protest in Provo, Utah, where a driver was shot by a protester who had been blocking their car. John knew that moments like these were what forged men of greatness, which is why John did what only a minority ice skating, Uber driving speed demon from Virginia could do. And it goes on from there. I didn't know he was a speed skater. I mean, all the stuff in terms of his biography is sort of documented in this, uh, you know, satirical video. I mean, it's it's satire, but the underlying biographical points uh, are true. Something that uh, the FBI apparently couldn't figure out, at least Director Ray. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Don't forget to follow us at danproftshow.com on social media at Dan Proft Show. We spoke with... Uh, Chris Smith of Vanity Fair a little bit earlier in the program about uh, one uh, party nips Cuomo and his brother Fredo. In part, we talked because we folded in Fredo about the uh, journalistic standards when it comes to, uh, gosh, I guess, having the Wonder Twins in uh, the media and political realms. And uh, the Pointer Institute, which is a leftist nonprofit that uh, purports to uphold and defend uh, the standards of journalism, finally came around to admitting that uh, Chris Cuomo was conflicted in his uh, on-again, off-again coverage of his brother, and CNN's credibility is taking a hit because of that obvious conflict. And uh, that's an obvious observation that comes very late from the Pointer Institute. But it um, is a nice setup to have a conversation about the state of journalism in uh, the D.C., press corps the eastern seaboard but really generally speaking for more on this we're pleased to be joined by daniel mccarthy director of the novak journalism program at the fund for american studies daniel thanks for joining us appreciate it thanks dan i'm delighted to be here you know robert novak uh he was print journalist but he was also a regular on uh, the cable news channels during his day a regular panelist on capital gang and the like it seems to me one of the issues is and this is just with journalism across the board, regardless of the medium. It's feigning objectivity when you have a point of view, as opposed to Robert Novak, who had a point of view, and he was transparent about it. And you could factor that in however you saw fit to whatever he had to say in terms of commentary, or if he was just reporting something that was newsworthy. Yeah, Robert Novak really set a gold standard. You know, he didn't start out as a conservative journalist. He had been a somewhat a progressive one at the beginning. But he found that the facts of what he was reporting on, especially in economics, gradually led him to a conservative worldview. And at that point, you know, it was quite clear to his readers, and he was always open about acknowledging where he was coming from philosophically and that he had become more conservative. But he continued to have a objective quality to what he wrote in his columns. So even though he was a syndicated columnist, he could have gotten away with just writing opinion, just writing about his thoughts on uh, the news. Instead, every column that he wrote as a nationally syndicated columnist contained new factual material. And it was always rock solid, something that could be verified, something that actually showed some new light and information about what was happening in our country today. And so I assume at the Fund for American Studies in the journalism program, you know, that's that's the what is uh, that that's that's that informs the instructions. So, you know, if you have a point of view, that's uh, fantastic. Be transparent about it, but also uh, provide the evidence to support it. You know, make a case. Don't just take a position. 
That's exactly right. So I run a journalism fellowship program at the Fund for American Studies, which was partly established by Robert Novak back in 1994 and is named in his honor. And uh, we take in about, you know, six fellows each year. These are young journalists, young reporters. And we insist that, um, you know, they can write about any range of topics, but uh, they should be clear about where they're coming from. But most of all, they should have real reported facts, real details, some objectivity in what they're saying. So, um, you know, their point of view can be uh, coming from one direction, but the facts should be something that everyone can agree upon and that really do illuminate the truth for any reader of their stories. You know, one of the other things that it was um, attendant to so much of the coverage during Trump's presidency was these anonymous sources, uh, you know, one in, according to an anonymous source, according to multiple anonymous sources. And uh, many times it turned out that those anonymous sources, at least, you know, to the extent that they actually existed, which I think is fair to ask, what they had to say turned out not to be true. How, how problematic is that sort of reporting, you know, always relying on anonymous sources and using sort of the cover of, well, they fear reprisal if they disclose who they are. You know, it's really easily abused. And if there's something that I wish the public knew about journalism that they probably don't, it's the way in which sources and reporters often interact. Um, so you might imagine that, you know, reporters just go out there and they have to be like private detectives. They have to uncover something that they don't know about. But unfortunately, the truth is often the case that uh, somebody who has an agenda uh, has an agenda. They seek out a journalist that they think will be sympathetic, and they say, here is a dossier that I have put together, or here is a, uh, you know, are some quotes and a point of view that I have constructed for my agenda, which I would like you to publish. And the journalist, you know, will go through their emotions and go out there and try to find, you know, a few other sources and confirmations. But the whole narrative has been primed by the source as opposed to by the journalist or the journalist and source have already from the start been so close in point of view that the source knew that the journalist would present the side of the story that the source most wants to see promoted. So um, there's an enormous amount of sort of mutual manipulation and collaboration between journalists and their sources sometimes. And it's very hard I think, for the public to be able to uh, filter out when a journalist is behaving in that way and when a journalist is actually being, you know, tough with his sources as well as, uh, you know, sort of just honest and getting multiple sources and multiple points of view. A journalist really should have, um, you know, a certain amount of skepticism towards uh, what sources are trying to present to him or her. It should not just be uh, presenting uh, whatever narrative uh, someone thinks, um, you know, they can uh, anonymously put out there. One of the other things that is uh, unnerving to me is the u- journalist's use of uh, access as a cover story to create sacred cows or targets. So, you know, I can't uh, write a negative story about politician A or politician B because I don't want to lose access to them. Um, whereas somebody who, and, and oftentimes it turns out to be people that are sort of simpatico philosophically, uh, whereas somebody else who I'm indifferent about in terms of my access to them, I'm happy to write a negative story about or cast in a negative light or marginalize in some way the abuse of that sort of access argument. Yeah, Robert Novak always had the opposite approach. He basically said, you know, if you don't want to talk to him, that's fine, but you should be aware that, um, you know, he's going to write what he want, what he intends to write. Uh, he will talk about your role in things. You might not like what he has to say. So if you want to have your point of view brought forward in a, a Robert Novak column, you have to talk to him. Otherwise, you're you know taking the risks to uh, you know be treated as uh, someone who you know first of all ha- is newsworthy, but second of all as someone who is also clammed up and doesn't want to talk to a reporter, and perhaps doesn't want to you know talk to the public about uh, what he's doing. Uh, one of the other things too, and I wonder how much this comes up in your conversations with your fellows is. Um, in 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 uh, most instances, 
if you're working as a journalist, you're working for a for-profit enterprise. And so some consideration of the audience, some consideration of fair play such that you enhance your credibility and people can rely on the reporting or the uh, the opinions uh, that you're offering um, is important. And uh, because it's interesting to see and see this in my hometown paper, the Tribune, you know, the newsrooms uh, caterwauling about, uh, you know, filthy venture capitalists coming in to uh, buy up their their uh, outlets and so forth. I mean, they're lucky anybody would want to at this juncture as they're hemorrhaging subscriptions uh, and, and readership, and, and they don't seem to understand why. Um, and so much so, it, it, this story is just fascinating to me uh, because it also presents this other challenge of conflicts of interest, potentially. The uh, Toronto Star, the owner of the Toronto Star, Hamilton Spectator, and other papers in Canada are getting into the online gambling business as the way to continue finance the pa- financing the paper's asp- uh, operation, similar to sort of financing K through 12 education through the lottery or something like that. It's sort of a bit unseemly. But regardless of the funding source, it uh, creates the need to have bright lines about how certain issues or institutions will be covered. But it's, and it's also a recognition that, you know, you have to be bottom line sensitive in the sense of, if you're part of the newsroom, having some respect for your audience so you may want to retain it. That's right. You know, journalists have to worry not only about, uh, you know, the readership for their publications, they also have to worry about the ownership. And one of the ways in which the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship Program at the Fund for American Studies tries to help alleviate some of the pressures there is that our funding, our fellowships, are intended for the journalists themselves, not for their institutions. And the projects that our fellows work upon over the course of their fellowship year are uh, independent, and they are encouraged uh, to turn their projects into books, perhaps, or to uh, freelance their work. Uh, you know, shop it around to multiple outlets, but they are not um, dependent upon their home institution or their their employer uh, for the work that they do as part of the fellowship. And I think that's one of the key things that we offer. It gives people a sense of independence, which allows for professional growth that otherwise uh, might be curtailed if they're fully dependent upon their um, uh, their employer. Daniel McCarthy, director of the Novak Journalism Program at the Fund for American Studies. Get more information on that program. TFAS.org, TFAS.org, the Fund for American Studies. Daniel McCarthy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And let me quickly add that the fellowship application process is uh, now open. It runs through April 12th. And I heartily encourage uh, anyone listening to this program who is a journalist and uh, has been in the business for less than 10 years uh, to apply. Uh, we really do want to find people from across the country. And, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, new talent is what we're always looking for. And okay. I strongly recommend anyone listening to uh, tune in. And they can get the application online at the Fund for American Studies, TFAS.org? That's correct. Daniel McCarthy, thanks so much. Thank you. Brought to you by the Fund for American Studies. The Fund for American Studies is an educational nonprofit that is changing the world by developing leaders for a free society, offering transformational programs that teach the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership to students and young professionals in America and around the world. Download a free ebook to learn how you can become a champion for liberty at teachingfreedom.org. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and thinking about uh, our conversation with daniel mccarthy from the fund for american studies 
and the Fund for American Studies programs that we've been profiling over the last uh, many weeks on this program, all about uh, young people who uh, did well in the K-12 through level, go on to college and have opportunities to intern in D.C. to in, in a wide array of fields. Uh, to take classes at Georgetown University in comparative economic systems and comparative political systems, to pursue uh, a fellowship in journalism, to study overseas. All of these opportunities that are foreclosed if you're not successful at the K-12 through level. So the lack of opportunity at K-12 through breeds lack of opportunity post-K-12, through right? And what happens in these big urban school systems that are disproportionately poor and minority in terms of the student population. One of the more disturbing stories you're going to hear comes out of Baltimore and the Fox affiliate reporting in Baltimore, Baltimore City Schools. And as you listen to the story of Tiffany France and her son, who she expected to graduate from high school this June, and now that is not happening, not by a long measure. I want you to think about, you know, who is in charge of K through 12 school systems? Who has been in big urban centers like Baltimore, New York, and Chicago and LA for 50 to 100 years? And why the promise of Brown v. Board of Education to eliminate separate but equal has not been fulfilled? At whose hands has it gone unfulfilled? The story of Tiffany France and her son, Baltimore City High School. He stressed, and I am too. Like, I told him I, I probably would start crying. Like, my son is, I don't know what to do for him. This coming June is when Tiffany France thought her son would receive his diploma. And I'm just trying to fight. He like, Mom, what, what was all this for? What did I do this for? Like, don't he get a chance? Do he get a chance? But after four years of high school, this mom just learned her 17-year-old has to start over. He's been moved back to ninth grade. Why would he do three more years in school? Y'all, he didn't fail, the school failed him. The school failed at their job. They failed, they failed. That's the problem here, they failed. They failed, he didn't deserve that. France's son attends Augusta Fell Savage Institute of Visual Arts in West Baltimore. His transcripts show in four years, he has passed just three classes, earning two and a half credits, which places him in ninth grade. But France says she didn't know that until February. She has three children and works three jobs. She thought her oldest son was doing well because even though he failed most of his classes, he was being promoted. His transcripts show he failed Spanish 1 and Algebra 1, but was promoted to Spanish 2 and Algebra 2. He also failed English 2, but was passed on to English 3. I'm just assuming that if you are passing, that, that you have the proper things, you know, to go to the next grade. And, you know, the right grades, you have the right credits. As we dig deeper into her son's records, we can see in his first three years at Augusta Fells, he failed 22 classes and was late or absent 272 times. But in those three years, only one teacher requested a parent conference, which France says never happened. No one from the school told this mother her son was failing and not going to class. Yeah, 
Francis' son, in his four years at Augusta Fells, earned a grade point average of 0.13. He only passed three classes. But his transcripts show his class rank is 62 out of 120. There's a lot there. But the bottom line is he failed 22 of 25 classes in three years. Nobody at the school did anything. And now his mom, and I'm sorry she's a single mom and she's juggling three kids and three jobs, but those represent choices that she made as well. And the father, too, wherever the father is, I'm not uh, giving him a pass. The reporter for the Fox affiliate had screenshots of her son's report cards with the Fs and the .13 GPA, .13. So... Uh, even paying cursory attention, looking at the report cards that are coming home or asking for report cards. I mean, you go, can't go three years without uh, not seeing a report card as a parent. She should have known. So there's no adult in this kid's life that didn't fail him. The statement from the Baltimore City Schools Politburo, because the superintendent wouldn't agree to an interview. Superintendent is black female just FYI, since the left loves to play identitarian politics, who's in charge of these school systems, all one ideology and many minorities that are in positions of authority in systems that are majority minority children. And how are they being served? Uh, Here's the highlights from the two page letter that was sent in lieu of a back and forth exchange with the superintendent. We received this two-page statement, which explains what should happen when a student is chronically absent or failing. The district says students received a letter about their academic status this past summer, and records can be accessed through the campus portal. When a student is absent, an automated call is placed to the number on file. The statement also said the school conducted recent home visits and the student's parent visited the school. But France says... None of that happened. What this statement does not address is why Francis' son was promoted despite failing classes. It doesn't discuss his class rank or the 58 other students with a GPA of 0.13 or lower. And that's the other point. This is a system failure. This is not just about that one child. 0.13 and half the class apparently has a lower GPA than 0.13? Uh, that school should be shut down. And every one of those kids should be scholarshiped out to some place that is interested in educating children. Uh, what did, did they get, the Fox affiliate doing this report? They got one whistleblower from inside the Politburo who uh, had his voice scrambled for fear of reprisal, and he went on to say, you know, what would you tell Mrs. France? I'd apologize. And this is uh, the... Uh, Lament of Miss France. I would I would apologize profusely. And he feels embarrassed, like he feels like a failure. And I'm like, you can't feel like that. And you have to be strong. And you gotta you gotta keep fighting. You know, life is about fighting. Things happen, but you gotta keep fighting. And and he's willing. He he's he's trying. But he where where do who would he turn to when the people that's supposed to help him is not? Who do he turn to? Right. People that are interested in educating children and schools with a track record of demonstrated interest in educating children. And this is why school choice is so important to end the underwriting of these criminal enterprises masquerading as K through 12 school systems. Oh, by the way, 
Baltimore City Schools, $17,000 a year per pupil, which is more per pupil than most suburban high schools in the country. Certainly, I know that from my home area of Chicagoland. It's more than most, and, and I'm talking about middle to upper middle income suburbs around Chicagoland spend per pupil. Not a money problem. A system problem. Not a resource problem. A leadership philosophy problem. This is Dan Proft. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Found out from an uh, equity toolkit being promulgated by the uh, educrats in uh, Arizona that uh, white babies uh, become racist as young as three months old. Sure, but that's that's how pernicious being white is. You don't even realize you're a racist because you can't remember being three-year-old, but it gets, gets hardwired into your DNA. That's the position of the left. The toolkit teaches, among other things, that babies start to become racist at just three months of age. The toolkit insists that babies must be spoken to about race as, quote, letting children draw their own conclusions based on what they are, unquote, leads to racism. The equity toolkit also suggests white children specifically are stronger biased in favor of their own race by the time they are five years old but claimed that such a phenomenon does not exist among black and Latinx children. Of course it doesn't. Uh, it, which brings me to a very interesting piece uh, by Eric Levitz in a New York Magazine. And this is uh, an interview he did, in, in part informed by an interview he did with David Shore, who is a uh, progressive Democrat operative. He was part of the Obama 2012 campaign. He runs a leftist nonprofit now. And uh, the Republican Party has the prospect to be a lot stronger than some people might think. And it's largely because of Trump. This is uh, an analysis, a threat assessment, essentially from the left, which is uh, interesting. And by the way, um, it's interesting also how much more accurate a depiction of the landscape. And this is data driven. Uh, you get from a David Shore uh, leftist operative than you do from the establishment Republican Party. Hmm, interesting. He uh, writes, even if a majority of non-white people agreed with liberals on all these issues, the fundamental problem is that Democrats have been relying on the support of roughly 90% of black voters and 70% of Hispanic voters. So if the Democrats elevate issues or theories that a large minority of non-white voters reject, it's going to be hard to keep those margins because these issues are strongly correlated with ideology. And black conservatives and Hispanic conservatives don't actually buy into a lot of these intellectual theories of racism. They often have a very different conception of how to help the black or Hispanic community than liberals do. And I don't think we can buy our way out of this trade-off. Most voters are not liberals. If we polarize the electorate on ideology, or if nationally prominent Democrats raise the salience of issues that polarize the electorate on ideology, we're going to lose a lot of votes. Basically, we have this small window right now to pass redistricting reform and create states. And if we don't use this window, we will almost certainly lose control of the federal government 
and not be in a position to pass laws again potentially for a decade in terms of putting numbers on things. I think if we implemented D.C. and Puerto Rican statehood and passed redistricting reform, that would roughly triple our chances of holding the House in 2022 and roughly the same in the Senate. So Donald Trump is unpopular, he goes on, and he does pay a penalty of that. Uh, he does pay a penalty for that relative to a generic Republican. But the voters he's popular with happen to be extremely efficiently distributed in a political ge- in, in political geography terms. So I think the Trump era has been very good for the Republican Party, even if they now momentarily have to accept this very, very, very thin Democratic trifecta, because if this coalition change, if the coalition changes are durable that he's describing, the GOP has very rosy long term prospects for dominating America's federal institutions. Isn't that an interesting perspective? It seems to be like the one we've been offering for some time on this show with respect to uh, Trump reshuffling the deck and with respect to the takeaways, even in defeat in November, of increasing the percentage of black and Latino voters at the presidential level. Now, even regaining control and regaining and, and enjoying dominance of the federal institutions, if David Shore were to be proven correct. That doesn't necessarily mean we know what Republicans will do, and it doesn't necessarily immediately translate into regaining balance, if not control, of all the cultural institutions dominated by the left. So this is a long fight. But it is interesting that um, you have a political operative on the left uh, offering uh, real concern about the, the, the hegemony of Republicans short of moving D.C. and Puerto Rican statehood and redistricting reform as sort of contained in that part of that contained in the legislation that passed the House yesterday. Very interesting. And when we come back, we'll be joined with the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation's Amity Schlaes to discuss all this and more. We'll be right back. to the Dan Prof Show. We're now pleased to be joined by the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation's Amity Schlaes, winner of the Hayek Prize and best-selling author of The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression and Great Society, A New History. Amity, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, I'm glad to be with you. Before we get to um, your piece about uh, the use of the word great or the overuse of it, particularly at the presidential level. What about the political landscape, as you're hearing David Shore describe it in that piece in New York Magazine I mentioned, and, and just your own handle on what, what you think it is right now? You know, generally, the left is more afraid of the right and more confident 
in a conservative or common sense values power to uh, win American votes than the right is. That's what's interesting, right? Republicans are kind of rambling all over the place, trying to sound like Democrats often on the minimum wage, for example, or with the child allowance of Senator Romney. That's just Democrat light. But Democrats like to get Republicans out of their traditional position because it's such a good one. We have an article, uh, the, the co-editor of this Coolidge autobiography and I coming out about how Gerald Ford was tricked and Jimmy Carter did real well by taking the empty space on Gerald Ford's right. It's a bit like basketball or any other sport. When you leave tennis, you leave the space open foolishly. Someone else is going to take it. Of course, Jimmy Carter wasn't a right-wing guy, but in the election, he played the right, and that helped him to win. And that was after a scandal, too, of course. But I want to say one other thing, vis-a-vis suppression and the general uh, mood, even Calvin Coolidge has been suppressed. We had a Facebook tweet of a Calvin Coolidge quote where he said, presidents shouldn't talk a lot because sometimes when they talk, that fomented hatred and jealousy. And this, Facebook refused to allow us to promote. Well, his nickname is Silent Cal, and they're going to make sure he lives down to that nickname, Silence. Knows nothing from Calvin Coolidge. Um, no, but but you know it, what I mean? Yeah, about, yeah. Uh, the, the left sometimes understands the power of the right, and I don't mean the evil right. I mean the common sense, strong right that understands um, government spending too much money or that extreme versions of affirmative action intersectionality aren't good for black or white, you know. Most people kind of understand that. So, right. so And the left gets that, that, that most people kind of aren't that crazy, well, that they're going to worry about their words to this extent. You know, we're all in the same country, and we generally want to help one another. Well, well, somebody that seems to get that, even if you don't always agree with his rhetorical choices, is Trump. And it was an interesting piece by Dan Henninger uh, in the journal about that and, and about his CPAC speech on Sunday, which is still being dissected. And he just pulled a lot of what Trump said in terms of policy vision for the Republican Party, the way forward for the Republican Party, including but not limited to Trump. And he, Henninger makes the point that you know, amid some of the bluster and um, unique communication style is a lot of stuff that were po- that, that was popularized during Reagan. He quotes him. It means low taxes and eliminating job ki- killing regulations. Trumpism. Well, it means it, let me just finish. could I it, uh, pick a bone well, with you on that? It means strong borders. It means no riots in the streets. It means very strong protection of the Second Amendment it means support for the forgotten men and women who've been taken advantage for so many years. It means a strong military and so on and so forth. So. Um, what, what, so, so go ahead, pick that bone. Well, I, actually, um, first I'll say that's what Calvin Coolidge was for, and that's how come he won. I, I, I yeah, came on okay. because I really like this book. I, I'm, I'm writing an intro to an old autobiography. It was published in 29 by Calvin Coolidge, but it is the best primer on common sense for your kids. Because Coolidge wrote great. He wrote short, clear sentences. He had beautiful homiletic prose. And um, he just told the story of what America was and how he rose in it. And what he did is necessary, um, and here comes the bone, Coolidge actually saved government money. He actually cut the budget, and he actually cut taxes dramatically. And my point is just that um, taxes and cutting the government can't be like a throwaway line behind a child credit. It has to be, no, these, these ideas, the basic principles, 
of um, American growth have to be number one. So it's up to other Republicans to seriously take very, very seriously um, the fight about the capital gains tax, for example. Other people say, oh, yeah, that's a rich person's tax, so let's raise it. It is not a rich person's tax. It is a tax on job creation in the United States. And so, I mean, I don't think there's an economist even on the far left, Dan and Amy, who would deny that if you cut the U.S. capital gains rate to 2%, we would have an ocean of international money and an ocean of activity here in the United States um, that would provide jobs for everyone and educational training for those who want it and need it. So they're just scared to say cut capital gains because, oh, that sounds like we're serving the rich. Oh, my God. So we have to be a little bit more leaderly on this and not cower behind social measures pretending that they are economic growth optimal. Uh, that, I'm glad you picked that bone because I'm in complete agreement. Absolutely. And that and uh, Trump it's, was it's a, a failure a on this. Yeah, Trump is a failure on the spending side like so many Republicans uh, for so many well, generations. I mean, I, I, I mean, what, one thing about Coolidge after the scandal, which he, they had a terrible scandal in the 20s, Teapot Dome, and you're like, I can't even remember what that is, right? Well, Teapot Dome got at the heart of the Republican goals because the Republicans were for privatization in that time after a big war and a big government, World War One. So they said, let's put oil in private hands to be managed. So you're saying you want to privatize or at least the private parties in that instance? You better privatize right and not just give out the money like Vladimir Putin to your friends. Right. And yet the Harding administration did that. That's why Teapot Dome matters. It besmirched free market principles and the very idea that the private sector could do a good job with such projects. So Coolidge became president when Harding died all of a sudden, and he had to clean all this up. And the way that he did it was he hewed to the policies written in the platform. So my own view is this is a good year for Republicans to write a real platform and take it seriously and put markets on the top um and because they don't know what they think and that means it's all about personalities and you can't go forever on personalities um setting aside uh, president trump or not you know you have got to have something truly bold and actually show you believe in it she is Amity Schlaes, and it's always an education with her. Board chair of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, winner of the Hayek Prize, best-selling author of books including *The Forgotten Man: A New History of the Great Depression* and *Great Society: A New History*. Amity, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. I'm thrilled to be there. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show, and we uh, close out this installment with um, a little bit more COVID talk. This says it relates to Major League Baseball. Uh, are you interested in going back to see a game? Oh, you know. I don't know, maybe uh, Major League Baseball, like uh, the other professional sports, has beaten your fandom out of you like it has me, given up all my season tickets to all the Chicago sports teams that I had tickets for, uh, including my beloved White Sox. And uh, speaking of which, interesting how political accountability works, doesn't it? Gavin Newsom, governor of California, 
who is now more likely than not to face a recall election. Now, he may survive it, but he's going to face it, it, it would appear. The signature count is just about at 2 million right now. They needed 1.5 million by mid-March. Of course, they want to get many more 100,000 than uh, is required so they could survive a, a petition challenge. Now, Gavin Newsom is saying, oh, he expects that fans will be able to uh, root, root, root for the home team by opening day next month. Meanwhile, in the competition to see who is the most a-scientific, most imperious lockdowner in the country, uh, Chicago Mayor Triple Threat, Lori Lightfoot, has seemed to inch ahead of Gavin Newsom and really most of the rest of the country. She suggested that uh, for Chicago residents who want to go to a Cubs game or White Sox game, that probably likely at some point in the season fans will be able to go to Wrigley or or Comiskey. I still call it Comiskey. Uh, She was not committed. She wouldn't commit to a date, but she did say, you know, she expects the plans to be uh, to be compelling and and thus allow for fans. But, you know, you got to pass that safetyist muster. Maybe they'll need uh, daily passes like the kids in the L.A. Unified School District. I'm sure many more school districts to come, as we discussed a bit earlier. I got an idea for uh, the residents of Chicagoland, of L.A., of New York, many other big blue cities that sport professional franchises, baseball teams in this case. I got a way to do this to perhaps pass the safetyist threshold even more so than the daily pass. Take the China model, the Chicoms. What are they doing? For foreign visitors, they're now making anal swabs compulsory. How does that work? I'm glad you asked. A five-centimeter-long saline-soaked swab just shoved it up your backside. Turns out to be more accurate than on-the-spot virus tests. And, of course, as men and women of science leading these wonderful metropolises around America, you're going to want to get the most accurate data you can, right? And so there you go. you got the best of both worlds. You're consistent with... Uh, your fellow travelers in the Far East, the Chinese communists, you know, the, the Newsoms and the Pritzkers and the Garcettis and the Lightfoots and the Cuomos and the de Blasios and the Murphys and so forth, consistent philo- philosophically. And uh, those residents are used to taking it up the backside anyway. So what's one more? Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please continue to stay informed so you can act courageously and we can live freely. And we'll see you for the show tomorrow. This is the Dan Proft Show.